Hello, good morning. Thank you, thank you, Tom. Let's try that again. Good morning. I love that. I feel like I'm at church every time that happens. Um, I'm Kimberly Flowers. I'm the director of our global food security work here at CSIS. Um, and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, today's dialogue is on the declining ecosystem and its impact on sustainable agriculture and the nutritious food that we need for a growing population. This event is a collaboration with the CSIS Global Food Security Project and the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO. We're very grateful to FAO for a longstanding partnership. It gives us this ability to jointly tackle topics that we really feel like needs to be elevated in the food security discourse. And this is certainly one that um, we don't feel gets enough attention. We have an exceptional, like really exceptional panel coming up for you, so you're in for a treat. Um, they're going to be able to talk to us about the linkages between biodiversity loss and the global food system, talking about the health of the planet, how that relates to our health, how agriculture can both contribute to this biodiversity loss, and how it could also be used to help conserve natural resources. Um, you know, I have to say, in doing my own homework on this, I have to think through, maybe there should be protests from students about biodiversity loss as much as there is about climate change, because it seems to be um, an equal threat to our planet and to ourselves. We're going to start this morning with Vimlinder Sharan. Vimlinder is the director of the FEO Liaison Office for North America. Um, I'll let you read all of the bios. I won't do lengthy introductions today, because we have a lot of speakers in limited time. But I'll just say that Vimlinder has decades of experience um, especially working in the government of India on rural development, food, and nutrition. Um, he has also been a representative for the UN, the Rome-based agencies such as FAO and IFAD and WFP. And Vimlinder will help frame the discussion. He'll also give a few highlights from the first ever FAO reports that came out this year on biodiversity loss, and he'll introduce our keynote speaker. Vimlinder, over to you. Thank you and good morning. Thanks, Kimberly. First and foremost, ignore my bio. There's nothing worth reading out there. You have a panel and you must see the bio which these speakers have. That's, that's the fascinating part of the uh, program today. Uh, I must thank uh, CSIS and especially Kimberly for partnering with us. It's been now two, three years, approximately two and a half years since we've been doing these uh, uh, events. And the partnership is growing stronger you know, with every passing day. Our now outgoing DG was a great, is a great fan of CSIS and has always encouraged us to you know, go in strongly in a partnership with uh, this organization. And I'm sure uh, most of you know that we had our elections recently, as recent as 23rd, which is just two days back. And we have now a new DG in FAO, uh, Xu Dong Yu from China. And we really hope, and um, I'm quite sure, given the background that he's coming from as Vice Minister of Agriculture, that this partnership is going to go from strength to strength. So uh, uh, thank you, Kimberly, once again. Uh, Kimberly, in her introduction, did mention that I would be speaking on the main highlights coming out of the uh, report which uh, FAO just uh, published on state of world's uh, biodiversity for food and agriculture. But 
Last night I really thought about it and I felt that if I do that, it takes the thunder away from my colleague Tom, who would be actually present, who would present the FAO story and tell us about the work that FAO is doing on biodiversity and it is amazing work that we are doing, which needs to be shared with all of you. So I'll, I'll leave that to Tom uh, to really talk the FAO story. I'll uh, just mention one point for uh, the thought amongst, uh, uh, just leave one thought amongst you is to, uh, it's, it's necessary for us to understand the distinction between uh, sameness and oneness. The quest for sameness has actually led to the destruction of biodiversity. What we require is oneness where every element of mother nature reinforces each other and makes it stronger. In place of that, what we see is, you know, something which is best exemplified if we look at the crops today, that there are 30,000 terrestrial plants which are edible, of which about 7,000 are cultivated or collected for food, of which 30 crops feed the world, and of which only five crops are contributing to nearly 60% of the energy requirement of the world. So from 30,000, we're down to five. So this quest for sameness needs to go if we want to preserve biodiversity, and that's, that's my only message which I want to leave. We must work for oneness and not sameness. It's also my proud privilege to introduce to you uh, our keynote speaker for today, and uh, Tatwila, who all of you know, anybody who's working in this space would know, and though for those of you who do not, uh, she uh, chairs the board for Water, Land, and Ecosystem Research Program at CGIAR, uh, the Access to Seed Foundation in Biodiversity USA. She's also a senior fellow with Meridian Institute. Uh, this is a new assignment that she's taken. Uh, she was with the Biodiversity as a DG earlier. She is distributing her new cards to everyone, so better pick up the new card that she has with her as a, a senior fellow with the Meridian Institute. Uh, she was also, we also have close association because she was also the Deputy Director General of FAO where she led the normative work in agriculture, natural resource management, forestry and fisheries, as well as knowledge sharing, knowledge management and capacity development. Was the coordinator, Global Food Security Office of the Secretary of U.S. Department of Agriculture and has also worked with USAID and also in many positions in the private uh, sector and foundations. So let me uh, welcome Anne to give her keynote speech and also welcome with her with a great round of applause. Thank you. Hi, well, again, I would also like to thank uh, CSIS and FAO for organizing this event. As uh, Kimberly said, this is a topic that we don't talk about enough uh, in our uh, engagement when we talk about the food and agricultural system. So is my, there it is, okay. So one thing I wanna say at the outset, um, you know, the way that this session has been framed is, is looking at it through the lens of um, the declining ecosystems and the impact on the, the ag system, I would like to look at it from the other perspective of saying, you know, what, what can the ag system contribute to rebuilding those agricultural and ecological systems, and how can we use 
agricultural biodiversity as part of the response to how we rebuild our ecosystems and put it in a very holistic uh, manner. So not only am I here, um, I'm listed as being at Meridian, but um, I am presenting this perhaps more as the chair of uh, Biodiversity USA because I'm going to be presenting uh, the results of a study that was just released um, by Biodiversity um, last, last week at the Stockholm uh, EAT conference. So we've had a number of global wake-up calls around the importance of diversity in our diets. The Eat Lancet report that came out uh, in January really highlighted uh, the need for diversification of diets, not just from the perspective of our uh, personal health, but also the perspective of planetary health. And of course, we have the uh, IPES global assessment uh, that came out just, uh, just a few weeks ago, and Bob will talk uh, about that. In fact, I told Kimberly when she told me who the panel were, I said, you know, you have five people who could keynote this, um, this speech, so I think all of us have a lot to contribute here. But, but these wake-up calls, particularly the focus on, on biodiversity, I think are really important as we're entering the stage of really starting to rethink how we approach um, agriculture in our economy. So one of the ways I like to frame this issue is, you know, there's a lot of people sort of um, rag or come down on the Green Revolution, but the Green Revolution had one goal, and that was really to reduce hunger and reduce famine in some very particular areas in the country, in the world. And we approached the Green Revolution the way that many developed countries had already approached their agriculture, which was to say, we're going to focus on a few staples, we're going to increase the yield of those staples, doing whatever we needed to do to increase food production. So that was what we asked of the Green Revolution. It succeeded. And let's you know, not pretend that otherwise. Unfortunately, as we succeeded, we also had some very, very terrible negative consequences. And now, one of those consequences was a, a real loss in the agricultural biodiversity in our food systems. And I always like to present this chart because it is, it is such a great visual about the fact that we are relying so heavily on only three crops for over half of our food calories. But we have 5,538, how they got 38, I don't know, um, crops that have been used for food by humans that we could be exploiting for use in our production systems and our consumption systems. And if you look, I couldn't find similar charts, but soil biodiversity shows sort of similar issues um, and Bob can, I'm sure, talk about all of those. So this is what's happening above ground, but we know this is also happening below ground and in our ecosystems. So, like I said, Green Revolution had one goal. It's, it achieved that goal, but with a lot of negative consequences on the environment. We are now asking our food systems to deliver on a much more complex set of challenges. Um, we have malnutrition, climate, um, land degradation, biodiversity loss, resilience, um, you all know the, the statistics, I'm not going to go into those, but we're demanding more of our food system. So how can the food system respond to those challenges? We believe, and I say we with my former hat of DG of, uh, of Biodiversity International, that agricultural biodiversity can provide really robust solutions to this complex set of challenges. And this is the FAO definition. Um, and just a cite that it is not only the diversity of food that ends up on our plate. It is the diversity of the system that supports 
ag our, our food and agricultural production. So it's um, diversity in the soils, it's diversity in um, pollinator species, diversity in landscapes, et cetera. So I think we need to be, when we talk about ag biodiversity, especially when I talk to farmers, they say, well, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to plant a lot of diversity in our fields. We're wheat farmers. I say, yes, but you care about the diversity in your soil and you care about the diversity of the pollinators and you, you have to care about these things even if you still are going to be a monocrop wheat farmer, right? So we also have a lot of evidence that agricultural biodiversity can make a difference. So it's not just um, sort of people expressing that belief, but there have been uh, peer-reviewed publications that have been uh, produced. And in fact, one that I just saw recently produced, uh, published in Nature. And what I think is the most interesting quote here is the greater effective diversity of crops at the national level is associated with increased temporal stability of harvest equivalent, equivalent to the importance of water, right? When I started working at Biodiversity six years ago, people sort of said, what the heck are you doing? I mean, what, why is that important, you know? And it's just a, it's, it's a niche solution. It's good for a few people in, in developing countries, but it is not something we should be embracing. And here we have a report from University of Minnesota coming out saying this is an effective strategy for global food security. The countries that used, had greater diversity crop production suffered far fewer crop failures. So it's not just a, a nice to have anymore. So ag biodiversity at the genetic level, it's the foundation of sustainable ag intensification, resilience in our food systems. It's a source of healthy, year-round diverse diets. And not only at the national level, which I just quoted from, uh, from this nature study that was published this past week, also at the household level, you see greater food security for people who are growing a more diversity of crops. And these are, again, people in, in poor countries. But the value is often very underestimated. Um, NIGA 30% of national biodiversity strategies contain specific measures on ag biodiversity. There's no agreed standard, and I'm going to come to that in a second. Um, and another issue which I um, have been also working on the F Food and Land Use Coalition report, which is going to come out at, um, at UNGA in uh, September, and this, this idea that we should just simply do no harm with our ag production systems really has to change. We want ag production systems that are going to contribute to improving ecosystems more broadly. Right? So we really need to turn that whole narrative around. And it's not just about conservation on this bit of land, and we can do whatever we want with agriculture on that bit of land. We really need to think about how the two systems work together and contribute to each other. OK, coming to the index. So one of the reasons Biodiversity International created this Ag Biodiversity Index is because there were no indicators agreed indicators on how we measure ag biodiversity, but even more importantly, measure it in a way that was helpful to policymakers make decisions and see the path that they needed to go on. We had a plethora of status type indicators, but they didn't really help a government say, what do I need to do to be better? So this is a very simple um, graphic of how the index is structured. Three, we tried to keep it simple, three pillars, um, 
diets, production systems, and genetic resources, looking at commitments, what governments say they're going to do, actions, what they've done, and status. Today, I'm going to present just a, a report that came out uh, looking at 10 countries. Countries, Biodiversity is also developing an index that will look at companies and evaluate companies on how they are doing against these same set of, um, of pillars and uh, the status action and commitment. But today, I'm just going to talk about the, com the countries. So this is um, a copy of the report. I urge you to download it and look at it. It is really rich. I was um, reviewing it this morning when I, I woke up. Um, the detail it goes into about what each of these countries is doing and needs to do is um, quite impressive. And it's not meant to say, um, in this case, you know, India's number one. Um, or Australia's at the bottom, it's meant to say in each of these areas, the different countries are making progress or not making progress, and really to say what are they doing well and what, could, what do they need to do better. Um, this is looking at the progress score. So how are they progressing in terms of moving across these indicators over a period of time? And you know what we really see is that uh, maybe in a not surprising way that some of the developing countries, India, Kenya, Ethiopia, um, Nigeria, are making good, better progress than some of the developed countries in terms of moving towards more diversity in their um, production systems and in their consumption systems. Um, in part, this is because um, developed countries started out at a better, uh, at a better level on some of these indicators. but. It's really encouraging, in fact, to see that these developing countries are starting to take this, um, this issue a bit more seriously. But the other point to make here is that even India is only at 40 out of a score of 100 on, um, on their status in terms of, uh, in terms of the progress that, that they're moving towards. So I also wanted to um, try to give a sense of um, both the overall report, but also drilling down into to what a few countries are doing. So this uh, bar graph is showing the status of ag biodiversity in each of these areas and healthy diets, uh, sustainable production systems, and for future options. And one of the things that was really interesting in looking at the report is that across the board, countries are, are doing a better job of, um, in terms of their gene banks and conservation of genetic resources than they are in terms of integrating biodiversity into diets and production. And I would say looking across all of the, um, the countries that, uh, that are in this report, and it's, as you can see, it's a mix. Everything, the United States is in there, China. Um, the countries are doing better on diets than they are on sustainable production. So this is a real mismatch when countries are saying we want to increase the diet diversity that is available to our populations. And I suspect it's because we have a very concrete um, health crisis in a lot of countries. It's very recognizable to people to move towards uh, diversity of diets. But production systems, we're not keeping up um, with that. So this is looking at, um, at Peru, which uh, is one of the highest countries in terms of its diversity uh, in the country. Um, and it gets to 60% on status score. Um, but again, mostly 
due to what it's doing in terms of con conservation. Uh, they are doing better than some of the others on the sustainable production systems, but lagging in the diet diversity score. Um, this is looking at China, um, which we thought was interesting since China's gonna be hosting the uh, CBD uh, Conference of the Parties in 2020. Um, strong commitments and actions, um, but they are lagging on future options on conservation of their genetic resources. And if you drill down and look at the individual reports for China, one of the things it does say is that China's doing great on conservation of, ex of exogenous species like rice and maize. They're not doing so well on conserving the, the um, genetic resources that are actually um, indigenous to China, like pears. So one of the other lenses that we wanted to look through with this report was, was looking at it through a risk-based um, lens. So this is looking at Ethiopia, where um, the risk of being able to mitigate the risk of poverty, biodiversity loss, et cetera, um, looking across all the indicators that are in the report, um, Ethiopia is doing better on reducing the risk of biodiversity loss. They're doing a very good job, actually, of conservation, um, but not so good, for example, on reducing the risks of malnutrition. And I think this is a good lens, interesting lens, uh, for policymakers to see how they can actually mitigate some of the risks that they're facing and costs that they're facing in their system um, by using agricultural biodiversity across these different, different systems. This is another cut um, that the report goes into, and there's similar uh, lenses on production systems, et cetera. Um, so as I was saying earlier, you see Aus Italy and Australia are doing quite good in terms of the status and how much biodiversity there is in their food system, right? But they haven't been making very good progress on that score. Um, Kenya, on the other hand, lower on the status, but is embracing and putting in place uh, measures to increase the diversity of uh, diets that are being offered to their citizens. So I'm gonna conclude there because we have a great rest of the panel. I could go on, um, but I did wanna say this developing this index has been quite a collaborative effort and it is um, an ongoing effort in terms of um, continuing to improve on the metrics. So I think one of the reasons Biodiversity issued this report was to say, you know, we've done, we have this index and it's out there, um, but also to begin to uh, start crowdsourcing ways to improve it and strengthen it over time. So that's the um, website. Please, like I said, uh, download this report. It's incredibly rich, incredibly um, useful, and I think is uh, in the run-up to the CBD meetings will also be quite, um, quite interesting to uh, inform some of those discussions. So thank you very much.
Thank you, Anne, for that um, presentation and, and keynote. You know, before I turn to um, Sir, Sir Watson, I love that you have a sir in front of your name. That's so cool. Um, I, I want to actually turn to, to Anne to ask you one quick follow-up question. And, and it's simply like, when you look at the numbers, like, you know, the best that a country is doing is 40 out of 100. That's like an F minus. And I don't know about you, but like at school, that's pretty bad. So uh, tell us just quickly, um, what can we do to get our scores better? Like what would you tell policymakers? Because they clearly don't know enough about this, right? We're barely getting them on board with climate change, much less something like biodiversity loss, because many of them do see, like you said at the beginning, a niche. Now I do think 10 years from now, this is not gonna be a niche anymore, right? But what, what would you tell policymakers now of what they could do to get that score higher to do better in global school? Yeah, 40 is not so great. <laughs> Even 60 is not not too good in most uh, most schools. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about the way this index was constructed, because it does talk about actions and um, and which is where the focus really needs to be, right? Um, there are some policy measures that governments can take um, to improve their scores. For in, for example. Um, in Ethiopia, one of the recommendations is um, to improve the diversity in markets and consumption is to um, improve the market functioning for local fresh products and, and the supply chains for products that um, you know, fit that diverse diet diversity score. Um, you know, in um, China, uh, one of the recommendations is to really promote through policies, through incentives, more um, diversity in the production system. Right? So there are policy measures. And if you look at you know, policies in um, developed countries that tend to support uh, the prices of a few commodities, rather than supporting um, production practices that are more sustainable or paying farmers for the benefits of clean water or soil conservation, soil carbon. So there are definitely um, switches that can be made at the policy level to start improving um, how countries are scoring. But you know, we, you have to start somewhere. And I think this is the first report card that um, countries have had on how they're doing. And, I'll stop there. I could go on. Thanks. Well, let's hope that we can school them to get those scores up higher. Um, I'm going to introduce the panel very briefly. Um, start with uh, Sir Bob Watson. Um, he's one of the most influential environmental scientists in the wor world, literally. He contributed or has led pretty much every major scientific assessment that shaped international and national policies and actions. I do want to point out in my own homework to prep for this panel, I really liked a piece that he wrote in The Guardian. It's called um, Loss of Biodiversity is Just as Catastrophic as Climate Change. Um, if you haven't read this or you want to know more about this man or this topic, I encourage you to write that down in your notes and read it. It's very short and it's, it's very interesting. Um, he also most recently chaired the Intergovernmental Policy Panel on Biodiversity Ecosystem Services, which also can be narrowed down to the acronym IPBIS. Am I saying that right? Yep. IPBIS? Yep. Um, okay, IPBIS. There you go. Um, and then next we have Nick Shakran. Nick is, um, has had a lot of on-the-ground experience, and he comes to us currently as the Chief Conservation Officer from the World Wildlife Fund. His background is a lot with the United Nations, um, 
especially the UNDP, and at the UNDP, he was the global head of the biodiversity initiatives there. Um, he's also has a lot of experience of integrating how you do biodiversity conservation into development planning and investment. So thinking through those linkages between economic growth and advising governments how you could perhaps do both. We also are very honored this morning to have Nayako Ishii. Um, she is the CEO and chairperson for the last seven years with the Global Environment Facility. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's also, we have a lot of acronyms today. The Global Environment Facility is also known as GEF. It's an international partnership of over 180 countries, international institutions, civil society, and the private sector that's working together to address the largest global environmental issues of today. And then last, but certainly not least, we have Tom Pesek. Um, Tom has over two decades of experience in sustainable agriculture, food and nutrition security, and rural development. He is here today as a representative with FAO, our partnership in today's event, but he also has a lot of experience at a number of UN agencies, including um, 12 years with IFAD, which stands for the International Fund for Agriculture Development, as well as with WFP. Is it okay if I call you Bob? Yep. Okay, Bob. So, Bob, um, first, any reaction to Anne's remarks? And then, of course, talk to us about the IPAS, um, the highlights, and, and just you've been working on this for a long time. So, what trends have you seen over the time you've been working on it? Thanks. No, I think clearly what Anne showed is that diversity is absolutely crucially important. We found that in all things, even in our pollinators assessment, we found that if you were to lose wild bees, for example, just putting honeybees there, managed honeybees, would not do the same job. The more diversity you've got in nature, the more stable it is, the higher the productivity is. So it doesn't matter what part of nature we're talking about, diversity really does matter. So what were the key conclusions of it best? Uh, 150 scientists supported by 300 more contributing scientists put this report together. They use 15,000 journal articles to assess. We got 15,000 comments through two rounds of peer review. So what were some of the key highlights? First, we deduced that one million species are at threat for extinction. 500,000 plants and animals, 500,000 insects, but they are not inevitable. If we start to manage our system better, most of those species will not go extinct. We are not in a six mass extinction at the moment. The most we've lost at the moment is about 2% of biodiversity. In the big mass extinctions, we lost 75% of species. So yes, we're moving in a bad direction, but we're not yet in a six mass extinction. Why are we losing biodiversity? Land use change and sea use change, followed by exploitation, especially over-exploitation in the oceans, climate change, pollution, and invasive alien species. All pushed by increasing numbers of people, increasing wealth, increasing capita consumption, more demand for resources. While climate change is not the major source of driving biodiversity loss to date, it is likely to become as important or more important than all the other drivers in the coming decades, basically.
What we've done is we've focused, rightly so, on producing food so people don't get hungry, clean water, energy, fibre. But as we focus on these so-called provisioning services, we've lost the regulating services, regulating climate, regulating air pollution, regulating pollination, regulating floods. Also many of the cultural services, inspiration, sense of place. 75% of land today is significantly altered compared to what it was. And projections suggest by 2050, 90% of the land will be significantly altered. 66% of the oceans are clearly under threat. And we've already lost 87% of wetlands around the world. Indigenous people and local communities play an incredibly crucial role in uh, saving biodiversity, showing us what is more sustainable. So we need to take into account the role of indigenous and local communities. Most of the 20 Aichi targets that were set in Japan in 2010 will not be met. In fact, none will be met. Uh, we'll make progress on about four of them significantly, some progress on others, but on some we've actually gone backwards uh, in the last uh, 10 years. Climate change, loss of biodiversity and land degradation together will undermine the achievement of most, if not all, of the sustainable development goals. They will undermine our ability on poverty, on food, water security, energy security, uh, gender balance. Uh, so we really have to show the key conclusion, I would say, is biodiversity and climate change are environmental issues. But they're economic issues, they're development issues, they're security issues, they're social, moral and equity issues, not just uh, environmental. All of the scenarios we run, business as usual, is not viable. Uh, where we go for increased uh, economic growth, not viable. And even when you've got regional competition, not viable. In all of these scenarios, we get continuing loss of biodiversity and a loss of ecosystem services or nature's contribution to people. If we have more sustainable scenarios with low population growth, we can do a better job but even in our most optimistic scenarios, we still see the continuing loss of biodiversity. So, nature-based solutions, are they good or bad? Both. If we have reforestation and restoration of ecosystems with native species, that can help both biodiversity and climate change. But if we start to replace native vegetation with monocultures for afforestation or bioenergy, a major solution in the IPCC report for climate change, it will adversely affect, without any question, biodiversity. And if it encroaches on arable land, it will threaten food and water security and the livelihoods of the poor as well. So we have to look carefully at nature-based solutions. So what do we need? We need transformative change. We need inclusive governance systems. We need to bring governments together with the private sector, with NGOs and with indigenous, and uh, indigenous peoples and local communities. And we need to generate trust. No one trusts anybody anymore. There's no trust within government, between governments, with the private sector. And without trust, we are not going to solve this issue. We need an evolution of the economic systems, eliminate perverse subsidies in agriculture, uh, energy, transportation. We need to take account of natural capital in making decisions.
We need to embrace a circular economy and we need actually incentive short term to stimulate sustainable production and consumption. We need multi-sectoral planning. You can't look at the agricultural sector without the water sector, the energy sector, even the transportation sector. We need to get finance ministers involved in setting policies that are sustainable and we need a new narrative. Most people believe that happiness is linked with more money and more things. Not necessarily so. We need to think, how can we have a good quality of life, but in a much more sustainable manner? And as you've heard, really from Anne, what we need in the agricultural sector is agroecological practices, coupled with a reduction of food waste in both developed and developing countries. And we need to consider what our diets are, both with respect to the effect on us and our health, and also on the environment. Thank you. Wow, okay. So that paints a, a pretty grim picture. But uh, Nick, as I turn to you, a um, couple of things. I mean, first, Bob certainly brings up the economic linkages here and, and also talked about the trust with the private sector. And another issue that I know you know well is around the SDGs. So if you can start or weave into your comments talking about how, we, how can we trust and engage the private sector in this? And is this issue gonna really undermine all of our progress on SDGs? Agriculture is by far the biggest contributor to habitat loss globally. Some countries more than others, but it's up to 70% um, of um, habitat loss has been attributable to um, agriculture and food production is an important part of that. Now, Bob has laid out the um, solutions landscape and it's, it's, it's complex. Um, clearly, you need an integrated approach, and I think sometimes we, we're looking for magic bullet solutions. They don't exist. Um, you've got to look at the totality, if you like, and from a systems perspective, looking at the ecosystem, economic systems, and social um, systems in conjunction. Now, um, having said that, I'm going to simplify this a little bit by deconstructing that solutions landscape into three parts when it comes to ag and food um, 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 specifically. The first is consumption, the second is waste, and the third is production. Now I'll dive deeper into the third in a second, but first I wanted to make a couple of comments on, 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 on consumption and waste. Now I know, um, especially from my last um, um, job at the United Nations, where I was the head of sustainable development at UNDP, um, food consumption is an incredibly um, um, tricky issue to, con to, to address because um, food is so intrinsic to cultures and just opening up the conversation is opening up a Pandora's box. So the Lancet, um, Eat Lancet report earlier this year talked about the need to reduce our consumption of meat and, and looked um, specifically in terms of increasing the vegetarian content and, and, and um, in, in, terms of our, in, in terms of our overall consumption. Of course, for many people around the world, this is an equity issue. And the question is, okay, well, there are many people who are micronutrient deficient and don't get enough protein. I lived and worked in Papua New Guinea for many, many years, and that clearly is an issue in remote parts of that country. And so one solution that works here in the United States is not necessarily a solution that works, um, say, in parts of Africa or elsewhere. And so it's something we need to be cognizant of, and you need tailored solutions which are culturally sensitive and, you know, and, and, re and respect um, local needs and circumstances. So that's a, a broad commentary on consumption. 
Um, on food waste, um, we would be able to feed all of the one in nine people who go to bed hungry every day just if we were to eliminate food waste. Now, that is not possible for various reasons, but we can certainly reduce it significantly. Here in the US, WWF um, has partnered with some of the largest hotel companies, companies such as Hilton, to take stock of waste in, in their operations, in their buffet services and restaurants and more, and, and, and take measures um, with the companies to reduce that waste. And it's been very successful. We're now extending that to working in the grocery sector with a partnership with Kroger. And I'm not going to discuss this today in any length, but it's just it is an important part of the solution. And again, um, food waste in a country like the US, the determinants of that waste are very different from, say, in a country like India or, or, or in the Pacific. So you've got to have um, locally tailored solutions. And then we turn to production. Of course, this is where the rubber hits the road. Um, this is where um, um, habitat loss um, um, takes place. It's a result of our production practices. So the question um, for WWF, and this is something we started to ask decades ago now, is how do we address the footprint of production on, 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 um, on habitats? And I think we came to the conclusion it's really hard to do that producer by producer. There are just so many. It turns out that a few hundred traders, um, processors, brands, retailers, buy and sell the vast majority of um, environmentally harmful commodities such as beef and soybeans, palm oil, and seafood. And so it turns out, too, that some hundred companies control some 25% of these commodity markets. Um, and because the supplies to these companies serve other um, 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 companies too, um, these 100 companies can influence production for up to 50% in, of, of our commodity production. And so we've taken a very targeted approach focusing on companies such as Walmart. I don't want to single them out, but they're doing um, a, a good job. Um, and looking at their supply chains, um, shining a torch on, on their practices and, and that of their suppliers, and looking to find practical solutions um, that can address um, the problem. These days, it's climate change which is often the biggest driver when companies are looking for solutions. When they're setting their science-based targets, the biggest challenge they confront is with scope three emissions, which is the emissions that uh, um, um, emerge in their supply chains and from their suppliers. And when you're sort of a commodity um, retailer, the question is, how do you do that? And you know, you're far-flung places. And so you need to work on the ground um, as well with the governments at the local level with the traders, um, companies such as Bungie and so on and so forth, who play such a critical role in influencing what happens um, in place in terms of finding solutions. Now, I know you wanted me to talk briefly about um, um, a field example. Um, I think, and rightly so, until the recent uptick, we've all, um, um, I think, applauded um, the fact that deforestation in the Amazon um, fell over successive years. Now, whether or not that will continue into the future, I think, is anyone's guess. I bet it wouldn't for various reasons, which we shall not discuss today. But notwithstanding that, the fact is it has happened, um, but with displacement, and particularly into the Cerrado and Chaco ecosystems, which um, have su suffered huge, huge, huge um, degradation. So we've turned our attentions towards dealing with that, working with large um, companies such as Walmart, Marks and Spencers, Unilever, McDonald's, and many more, 
with the Nature Conservancy and with other actions, actors like the Accountability Framework and um, the Soy Working Group and more. Now it turns out, and this is a bigger issue, and Nako, I'm setting you up because I think you've got to talk about this because it's something the GEF has turned its attention to, is if you're going to stabilize at the um, agricultural um, um, expansion into the wild, wild frontiers, you're going to need to find a way to restore degraded land. And the fact is that um, in the Cerrado, some 100 million acres of degraded marginal land, okay, could be used if rehabilitated for soy production, um, which would allow a 170% increase in soy production without expanding the loss of habitat. So then the question arises is what are the incentives and disincentives that are at play in determining whether or not land is cleared, um, wild land is cleared, or whether um, degraded land is, 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 is restored. And the fact is, as a cost-benefit calculus, often um, there are policy um, um, weaknesses or failures that lead it to, um, the, on the producer side to make it easier to, to claim and clear virgin land rather than to restore degraded land. And what we need to do is to change that cost-benefit calculus to, to, to make um, restoration um, uh, of the better option. We're going to need to do this globally. I mentioned the Cerrado here, but I think this is the bigger challenge that we confront um, in, in, as we pursue sustainable development. I'll stop there because I've probably used my five-minute five time budget. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, now, he, he did set you up um, and in the terms of thinking through um, how does the finance angle come into this as far as what do we invest in to tack, tackle some of these issues and what are some of your big priorities as you're working on this right now? Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I think the message from the science is extremely clear. Today we hear from FAO that the, uh, and uh, the Biodiversity International, we hear the IPBS, and so the message is very clear that we are human are becoming a um, very powerful forces against the, the ecosystem actually function of the earth. So the unless we really change the way we human have a pressure on the earth, that then our uh, um, future prosperity is not really secured. So the question to us is and how we human have ch can change our way of doing business, particularly against the relationship with the, with the our earth system, the function of the earth, that the Nabob made it very, very clear. It's not just an environmental issue, it's an economic issue, social, it's a security issue, it's an equity issue. It's actually that then, uh, we need to find a way to, uh, to, to um, do the total transformation of our life against that, then, uh, the nature. So that then, uh, then we go back to your question, then what is our role, uh, institution like, and the public financing institution in this sphere? So I think that then uh, um, the, um, maybe um, the one particular, um, uh, maybe let me say this thing, that the, the four key economic system we really need to change is, number one is food system, as already mentioned, very clear from this table, how we can make our food system to be much more sustainable. Right now the food system is completely broken, that the, as already mentioned, that the, uh, we, um, uh, that the, the food system is the major destroyer of the global environment in terms of biodiversity, in terms of the water, in terms of the greenhouse um, emission, in terms of the waste, in terms of the, the fertilizer, the chemical. And then still, that it produces the 
that the 2.1 billion uh, people overweighted and the 800 million people still uh, go to go, go, go betting hungry. So this uh, is that the food system, it's in one word, it's, it's broken. Then that uh, going forward, food system is in perfect storm because still you need to feed 10 billion people without degrading environment anymore. So how the food system can really do it? So then that the total um, transformation of the food system is absolutely important. And on this one, that the, uh, the GF's priority is actually that the, is a, a transformation of the food system. Actually, two weeks ago, our board uh, approved uh, that the 230 million US dollar um, flagship program of food and land use and restoration uh, program. And Bob was an, uh, our keynote speaker at our luncheon. <laughs> that the board was extremely excited to hear directly from that, uh, um, the chair of the IPBS about uh, how the science is and how the institution like us is responding to the message from the science. This food and land use system uh, program had three components in it. Number one, we need a comprehensive land use pl uh, planning because that then, uh, the fact happening is this, uh, uh, this uh, unplanned <laughs> exploitation or expansion of the food system. But what we really need is to have a comprehensive land use planning that the fish could actually tell us which part needs to be protected, which part could be sustainably used. And it has to have a comprehensive land use planning, ideally speaking, not only national level, but even global level. So that's number one. The second thing we need to actually push, we are pushing in that program is, is actually the value chain approach. We all come to know there are uh, actually four globally traded commodity, which are actually that, uh, that destroying the global, uh, the biodiversity and also the causes of the greenhouse emission, that the water, land, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, the, the forest. So how we really bring this value chain approach uh, to those globally traded uh, commodities like palm oil, soy, that and beef, um, uh, and so on. So that then, uh, that value chain approach, how we can bring that to that then, uh, uh, the country level is another one. It's very important. I think Nick briefly mentioned it. Then the last and the third and, uh, element to this and the food and land use system program is actually the landscape approach or jurisdictional approach. Uh, Bob already mentioned that then, the role of the policy is very, very important. So how we clearly uh, transform the policy makers to do the right thing at a jurisdictional level so that the, uh, the jurisdictional approach is very important. So comprehensive land use planning, that the value chain approach and landscape or slash jurisdictional approach, how we could really bring those three key elements together. That is that the GF's new um, programmatic um, program approach, <coughs> food and land use coalition, the restoration approach, that then we initiated that then 18 countries with 230 million, but another batch, another 200 million will come later uh, this, this, uh, this year. But one thing I just want to mention to conclude, this loading out this food and land use program is a huge challenge because our human world is still siloed very much by ministry, by um, national and local government, government versus private sector, by conventions. So when we try to 
roll out this comprehensive food program approach, what we were encountering is this man-made silo of vested interest or ministerial demarcation and that the trust or lack of trust between private sector and the government. So that then we have been encountering a lot of man-made silos. But then the value of this rolling out, this kind of program is to how to decide of those man-made silos. And what I really feel quite excited is that when we visit some of those key countries and to bring environmental minister and agriculture minister, sometimes transportation minister together to talk about what kind of food system you want to have, um, I was very pleased that in Peru, the president really opened the dialogue and bring that environment and agriculture together to talk about it. So that we just need to have that kind of dialogue at the country level and bringing value chain the landscape together. So that will be my, um, actually the GF's contribution uh, to address this and the broken, inefficient food system, which is in perfect storm. Um, some uh, people already mentioned the year 2020 is a super year that we have so many important international events in 2020 that the COP, uh, CBD COP uh, is hosted uh, in China, by China in 2020, uh, that then, uh, the uh, uh, post-IG um, um, biodiversity target will be discussed, the climate and the change arena that the NDC needs to be updated, review and updated, and then that there is an ocean conference in 2020, and I have seen this, and the nature is rising enormously in this global international policy discussion. So I think we really have to seize this political momentum to put the nature uh, and much more frontally, it's not just the environmental issue, it's really economic and social equality security issue. So how we could really bring our forces together to seize this political momentum in 2020. So that would be my goal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tom, um, talk to us about the FAO story. How does this fit into some of the things that FAO has been researching? And, and what do you see in terms of positive trends? Do you see any glimmers of hope that you can help us out with? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, but even I can't sugarcoat the current situation. Um, I think the colleagues who've spoken before me have covered well the lay of the land and, and really set the stage for what's happening in terms of biodiversity loss for food and agriculture. And so I'll focus less on the highlights and key findings of FAO's state of biodiversity and uh, for food and agriculture. Um, but there are a couple of things I would like to note about the report itself. First is that I think the report is just as significant for its extremely sobering findings as it is for its comprehensiveness. The report is the result of over five years of work based upon 91 different country reports with over 1,300 contributions, including inputs from 27 different international organizations and over 175 authors from around the world. So the point here is that this is not some superficial snapshot of what's happening around the world, but rather a very, very deep dive into what's happening, providing the first ever global assessment of biodiversity for food and agriculture. And as you've heard, the news is not good whatsoever. But importantly, this report provides us, for the first time ever, with a baseline 
for where things stand so that going forward, we can better monitor, track, and measure our progress. The report, um, I believe, is a thunderous alarm bell and call to action for policymakers, decision makers, and the global community writ large that biodiversity for food and agriculture is declining at a staggering, dramatic level. And if we don't reverse this, if we don't stop this quickly, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, the report also warns that biodiversity and species, once lost, once extinct, cannot be brought back, that this is permanent, that it's final. But I think that reports like this one, alarming reports like this, matter most if they compel and trigger action and change. And so I certainly hope that that's exactly what this report will do. And I think it's easy to feel pessimistic listening to the speakers here on this stage. And certainly in reading the FAO report, it would be easy for one to conclude that all is lost, that we face a series of impossible challenges and scenarios without solutions. But I think if you read this report more carefully, and I certainly encourage all of you to do just that, I think you'll see that a lot of these seemingly impossible challenges are actually fantastic opportunities in disguise. They offer windows of opportunities through which we can transform agriculture and the broader food system in a way that makes it more biodiversity friendly. So there are some signs of hope in this report. And, and while the report makes for a very sobering read, one that should keep us all awake at night, there are signs of hope. It shows us that we do have the knowledge, we do have the practices, we do have the technologies in order to transform things and in order to better protect and safeguard biodiversity. Encouragingly, the report also describes that among the 91 countries that are featured in the report, 80% of them indicate big upticks in the adoption or application of biodiversity-friendly practices such as conservation agriculture, organic agriculture, agroecology, agro agroforestry, uh, climate-smart agriculture, sustainable land, water, and forestry management. And one of my favorite examples from among those that are highlighted as, as positive um, biodiversity-friendly practices is one that comes to us from California in which farmers actually flood their rice fields in the winter rather than burning them as usual at the end of the growing season. And what this has done is it's created 111,000 hectares of wetlands and open space for some 230 bird species that were on the brink of extinction. And in a very short period of time, these birds have increased in population, many of them doubling in a very short period of time. And the reason why I find this interesting is if you think about it, this really requires very, very little investment in terms of human and financial resources. But look at the, look at the impact and the benefits it's yielded in a short period of time. Now, Kimberly, to your question about FAO, I think it's, you know, I, I thought about this in listening to Anne when she cited that agrobiodiversity was first coined by FAO in 1999. FAO has been doing work on biodiversity, safeguarding and protecting biodiversity since its uh, genesis, since its beginning nearly 75 years ago, but only recently we have a name for it. 
It used to be called something else. So it's something we've been doing all along. For example, at the very first FAO conference in 1945, one of the biggest agenda items was fishery conservation because there was growing food insecurity in Europe and elsewhere around the world in the aftermath of World War II. And measures were taken at the FAO conference and called for that would conserve fisheries, not just the quantities of available fish, but also the varieties. And shortly after that, FAO adopted the International Plant Protection Convention. And shortly after that, FAO established what is now known as the Commission on Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, which is specifically dealing with safeguarding biodiversity for food and agriculture. So again, it's, it's something FAO has been doing for quite some time. And I think given the nature of this challenge, FAO recognizes that it must be tackled at all levels. So from the farm level to the local community level to the national, regional, and global level. At the global level, FAO has been doing a lot of work to try to promote and improve policy coherence within the UN system itself. So working closely with UN Environment, with UNESCO, with the World Bank, with our colleagues at the Global Environment Facility who we have with us here this morning. Also working across our 194 member state countries, trying to build consensus at the intergovernmental level and also trying to promote policy coherence among them. And I think very importantly, FAO is also working beyond the agricultural sector, trying to build bridges across the agricultural sectors and the other relevant ones in this space, especially the environmental actors. And, and one last example is that in 2017, FAO established the biodiversity mainstreaming platform that's intended to uh, fill knowledge gaps, to improve coordination, policy coherence, uh, and to promote enabling policies and frameworks at the global, regional, and national level. And in, in 2018, FAO hosted the first ever global multi-stakeholder dialogue on biodiversity mainstreaming at our headquarters in Rome. And since then, we've rolled out a series of dialogues at the regional and national level. Uh, there's going to be a, a big regional dialogue in Latin America and the Caribbean later this year, and then one in 2019 in Asia. And there are a lot of activities happening at the national level uh, in parallel that feed into this. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm going to ask one or two quick follow-up questions, but I will turn to the audience. And, and for the sake of time, we may only have one round. So don't be shy. Have your question ready. Um, Bob, I want to turn to you first. Um, you know, Tom talked about the thunderous alarm bells of the FAO report. You know, you all have now three reports that you need to read coming out of this, this event. But, um, and, and, and Eiko, you talked about, you know, the broken food system, but that we might have this political moment to seize. So my question to you, Bob, is, I mean, the alarm bells have been ringing for a little while. It feels like nobody's listening. Um, is there a real political moment to seize here? And if so, maybe it's the 2020 event that China's hosting, but what is it that global policymakers, because they have very limited attention spans, what do they really, it's true, right? They have a lot of competing priorities. What do they really need to know about this to really make change? 
First, I would say you cannot look at climate change, biodiversity and land degradation as three separate issues. You've got to deal with all three together. You can't deal with them as environmental issues, as I said earlier, their development, economic, social issues, etc. I think the meeting in China next year is the opportunity, but if they only come up with a series of new targets without actions, we won't make any progress. So targets without actions don't lead anywhere. We proved that for the 2010 target. We've largely proved it for the 2020 Aichita. So I think the time is indeed China next year. But we need the conventions to work together. We need government departments to work together. These aren't issues of the Environment Department. It's the Water, the Energy, the Agriculture Department, the Finance Ministry. We need the international organisations to work together. So we need much more cohesion. But China, I think the meeting in China is the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and Nick, I have a follow-up question for you because Nico also talked about those man-made silos, which any of us know if we've worked on the ground or in government, right? It's, it's a challenge everywhere and, and something that Bob just talked about too. Um, what, what best practices or what can we do to break down those silos and kind of create that collaboration <laughs> that we know we need between all these different groups? Any examples from the country level? You know, you asked me a question about the SDGs and I failed to answer it, but, <laughs> but I think the answer lies within the Sustainable Development Agenda, um, and it's about recognizing the interrelationships between these three conjoined systems, ecosystem, social, environmental. Now, this is a, it's a complex world, okay, so look at this from a three-dimensional perspective. The question is, and someone's termed um, this systems acupuncture, what are the pressure points? that can have a huge impact positively on all three systems. Or if there are trade-offs, um, what, you know, what are they? Because surfacing those trade-offs, I think, is really important. Um, too often, we, 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 we present silver bullets as solutions and forgetting that there are really big externalities and, and negative um, of impacts. For example, here in the US, um, um, you know, there is an entire body of investors who are absolutely certain that the future of food production is in vertical farming. Okay, which is, um, which, which is great. You can see these facilities in California and so on and so forth. But my question is, what are the billions of smallholders who depend on, on smallholder agriculture for their livelihoods and for their you know, food, food security going to do in the future? If, if our solution is going to be an industrial agriculture, um, okay, but what, what about the future of jobs? And, 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 and so you've got to really start to look at this through um, the economic and social prism as well, and not just the environmental one. Um, are, there, are there solutions? Well, I think um, integrated planning, and I think the, um, 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 the effort that the GEF is making in this space, and actually I think all three programs that Marco spoke to are, are, are getting at, uh, I think, um, the future, which is to work in a more, in a more in integrated way. And I think, um, and I think uh, to me, that, that, that is what we need, where we need to focus. And Bob and I were discussing before we, we, we sat on the podium, and he says, really, the future of IPBES really ought to be looking at these solutions and things. Where, where, where are the points of, of in, best investment in, in, in finding these solutions?
As always, we always run out of time for all my great questions, so I want to turn to your great questions. We'll have microphones in the back to run to you. Um, let's come right to the front here. Let's have Colin in the back. Uh, let's have this woman in the front here, in any order, doesn't matter. Carolyn, you can come to the woman here on the end. Eilish, we can do Colin in the back, and then we'll come to you. Um, go ahead and please stand and state uh, your name and organization if you have one, and be brief so that we can try to get through as many of you as possible. Please go ahead. on can we turn it thank you that's better hello my name is Sophia Finster I work at Pixar global and our mission is to reinvent how the public private and social sectors engage to solve global problems um, so Bob I loved you talking about partnerships and the need for that and I loved hearing you say that we need to be working with indigenous communities um, so I have a two-part question one what have we been currently doing to work with indigenous communities and learn from them and also, how can we help small farmers and large farmers work together to solve these problems? I've talked with a lot of small farmers, permaculture farmers and aquaponic farmers, and they're often very hesitant to want to work with more large-scale farmers. Um, so how can we help those partnerships happen, and how can we partner better with indigenous communities? Excellent, thanks. Carolyn, you can bring the microphone right here to the front. Colin, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm from One Acre Fund. We work with uh, smallholder farmers in East and Southern Africa. And I'm really interested in the question of behavior change at the, at the farmer level, at the smallholder level. Um, you know, one of our biggest challenges is how do we get the farmers we work with to diversify? But if you just have a few acres of land, um, take our Kenyan farmers, you're going to want to grow maize to feed, to feed your family. And we've actually really struggled to get our farmers to adopt sorghum and millet. So I'm just interested if there have been any successes of driving behavior change at that level, and really it's taste preference at some level for those, for those families. That's a really good question. Sir, go ahead. Sure, um, thank you. Piotr, from, uh, uh, just graduated from SAIS, and um, during my time there, I um, SAIS is a policy-making school, and uh, we did economics as part of it, but economics is so outdated, it's, it's all about you know, consumption-driven, and Bob, I have to say, it's, it's so refreshing to hear passion. We, we lack passion, and people are deterred from passion, um, and facing the big questions. And, and I run a blog in my meantime, and, and my age are, you know, social media driven and, and I feel like people jump on the bandwagon of oh let's be sustainable and let's you know be eco-friendly but they don't actually know what it means and what it actually really takes to do the effort so my question is primarily what can we really do to get the mindsets to change of people not to look at purely what we can use environmental uh, ecosystems for for our own gain but just for the actual pres preservation of what they are and their own, own amazing, you know, the fact that we exist in the way that we do um, and, and how we can, you know, change people's minds to put the environment first and consumption second. Thank you. Great. Let's go ahead and grab a few more questions. Do we have any? I know we had some journalists that were supposed to come today. Any journalists in the room? Doesn't mean I won't call on you people that have questions. I'm just curious. Okay. Uh, the woman in the back with the glasses. Let's take someone way over here. Do you see the woman? Yeah, right there. And Carolyn over here. And then if we have time, we'll get to you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. The, do, you have the, do you have a microphone? No, I have to raise my hand. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, Eilish, can you give her a microphone? You don't have a question. You were just raising your hands. A journalist. Now I got it. Sorry, I'm a little slow. Okay, well, come over here. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Kelly Kurz with Mercy Corps. 
Um, a lot of people look at biodiversity improvements as a, a thing you do once you're in a stable context. Can you talk more about these unstable contexts, humanitarian issues, and how we, like policies or practices you are thinking about um, to safeguard biodiversity in those situations? Hi, uh, Nate Johnson with Oceana, and I'm curious as to the role that you see fisheries, both wild capture and aquaculture, playing in a global sustainable food system, particularly in places like West Africa and Southeast Asia, where these are critical resources for the people there. Glad you asked that question. I see Wit in the audience from CSIS, who's our director of ocean security. I'm sure will be happy to hear that. Let's do Dan, and then one more, the one behind who's been very patient, and then we'll turn to our panels for final remarks. Dan, go ahead. My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector advisor. Do any of you know if anybody's talking to teachers, to uh, school boards, uh, to talk about uh, integrating curriculum uh, courses to teach children? Uh, th that's it. Thanks. Great. Final or, to teaching, or to teaching universities where teachers learn about teaching. Great. Final question right here. Uh, hi, my name is Stephanie Mickelson Correa, and I'm a AAAS Science Policy Fellow hosted at the EPA. And I'm curious if you could speak to the role of biotechnology uh, in these sort of integrative approaches that you mention, um, especially because, you know, there's a great deal of misinformation about the science and the safety of uh, plant biotechnology. And so, which just curious if you know you could address sort of the role of plant biotechnology and then also how we deal with sort of public uh, communication um, about the science and safety. Excellent questions. Usually I take a round of three, and of course I did that different this time than I told you guys would do. We had a whole bunch. Um, how we're going to do this panel, so we're going to start with you, Anne, and come all the way down. I know it's lightning because we have 10 minutes, so address what question applies to you or that you want to address, and then we'll, we'll give the final words to Bob. Anne, please go ahead. Yeah, I think to me the most important takeaway from this is that we are now understanding that food and agricultural systems is the entry point for addressing these issues that we've all been talking about. I won't reiterate them. Um, and you're right, policymakers need simplicity. And if you say, you know, go through this food and ag system and you're going to hit a lot of the targets you care about, everything from diet to health to ecosystems, et cetera, I think it's a useful lens that we're putting on this, this very complex set of problems right now. Um, just a couple of points to pick up. So uh, from the One Acre Fund, I think we, we, we shouldn't expect that every single farmer has to have a diversified um, production system, right? I mean, some, some people, it's going to be more effective for them to be growing you know, one or two crops and not 15 or 20. Um, but what we need to do is to produce those commodities. And I, I think, Nayoko, your um, sort of supply chain-based approach, you know, we need to make sure we're producing in the most sustainable way, the most regenerative way, if I can use that term, when we're talking about these sort of major commodities. So let's not get it down to every single farmer has to do, we're talking about landscapes, we're talking about overall production systems, what's in, in the markets and what people can buy. Um, to Dan's question, there is a lot of work starting to happen um, at the school level um, in developed and developing countries, and I, I do think it's an important entry point because we have to change um, how our how the future generation thinks about about food and agriculture and understands that um, 
I am going to answer the biotech question because I think it's an important one. It keeps coming up. Um, you know, one of the topics, uh, comments in this report that I presented was to say that, um, I forget which country it was now, but, you know, when you talk about some biotech interventions, it's not so much that they're biotech or not biotech. What they can lead to is a more of a monoculture approach that is not necessarily supportive of an ecosystem approach. So it really is not the technology per se, it's what else is around it and how you support it and use it. Um, my old organization, Biodiversity International, um, works on bananas and banana diseases. They are nasty diseases and it's very difficult to solve them. And we actually released with the Ugandan government a biotech banana because it was the only way to solve a particular banana disease that was really hurting smallholder farmers. So it's not yay or nay, it's, it's how do we look at it in the context of the production system and the problems that it's trying to solve. Thanks. Great. Tom, final thoughts? I mean, first of all, I agree with everything Anne just said. Starting with the One Acre Fund, I think that nothing breeds change and adoption uh, like success. So I think especially smallholders who are very risk averse, but also in some ways farmers are the quintessential entrepreneurs. I think if they see that something's working, they're more keen to adopt it. And so I think producer organizations and farmer organizations have a big role to play here, especially in de-risking this to an extent for them. Um, I think uh, with regard to the question on biotech and even fisheries, I think that given the scope, I mean, not the scope, but rather the scale and the magnitude of the challenges at hand, I think that we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation. Uh, and, and I just think that um, solutions need to be local and context-specific. So I think that we need to have all the tools in the toolbox uh, at our disposal and, and uh, determine what's appropriate when and where. Uh, more broadly, I think one of my key takeaways is that um, the, the challenges we face to solving these problems are kind of classic in a sense that uh, they're the same ones we've, we've had for many years. We need a uh, multi-sectoral and multi-stakeholder approach to all of this. Um, I fully agree with what Anne said about how the challenges we face, whether it's demographic challenges or sustainability or climate change or food and nutrition security or biodiversity loss and ecosystem loss, food and agriculture are, are really the entry point and at the heart of the solution to all of those things. And I think what we really need is for the different sectors to really begin in a meaningful way to begin talking to each other and collaborating, as well as with governments, the private sector, producers, and civil society. Thanks, Tom. Two quick points. I have been just thinking about what a, where is the pressure points to really change that the net to, to make the food system more sustainable. Yes, that the uh, political leadership is important to bring those and the different ministers together, but also the role of the consumers and the investors become also very, very important. If the consumers are given the more information about the, uh, if you are chocolate, <laughs> deforest, <laughs> the Ghana, <laughs> and the Cote d'Ivoire, you may think about it and which chocolate you may want to buy. So that the, the palm oil, that the, the soybeans, it's all the same. I mean, that the, how much information that the, we were able to 
to provide the consumers that which will change. I guess I think I said that the behavior of the consumers, same thing of the investors, how much that then the investors can change their investment, um, the, uh, the decision. I think that the, the role of the information is absolutely important. And I'm very happy to see also that the role of the, uh, the smallholders pop up in the questions. Uh, whenever I have a conversation with an, uh, the rolling out the food and land use program from a president, but also from um, the private sector, that the private sector operating in the north, actually talking a lot about uh, the, the role of the uh, smallholders in order to make their supply chain sustainable, they actually see the role, role of the um, smallholder very, very critical. So I think that if we really promote this value chain landscape approach, there is a lot of the, 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 the opportunity for us to do that than uh, the uh, smallholder um, uh, uh, the the um, um, road to be to be to be really secured. My final point: New Deal for Nature. I don't know if you have ever heard about this New Deal for Nature. It's different from Green Deal in this country. New Deal for Nature is kind of popping up for the last maybe year or so, mostly from the green community. And then that to us, 2020, what kind of deal we would like to push and for policy, uh, political leaders, uh, and other citizens. So New Deal for Nature, without really knowing what exactly it means, it has started to capture that uh, political attention or kind of an enthusiasm from, from citizens. I think it's very important, as I think the Bob said, whatever we, we have this big vision, I think the pathway is absolutely important. Action without pathway really doesn't, I'm sorry, the target without action really doesn't do, uh, the numbering much. So whenever we say that the new deal for nature, a lot of targets, but then how you can really drive that and come up with a pathway to achieve it is extremely important. I think this is something we need to really work and um, work for for next uh, up to up to 2020. Well, I have to admit, I'm a practitioner of the dismal science. I'm an economist. <laughs> I think you are too, Noko. Um, and I think economics has a lot to say on the subject of behavior change, and a number of the questions um, um, were about just that. Um, one key issue is we need to understand the risk calculus that producers um, have. Um, and of course, that's different if you're a smallholder, a medium-sized producer, or a large holder. And we've been doing work on, along the deforestation frontier in the Amazon and the Cerrado, looking at smallholder risk and working with trader companies to um, um, establish long-term con forward contracts. So to get some security of contract um, with a view to trying to stimulate um, shifts in their production practices, and in particular to invest in, in, in the restoration of land and the maintenance of productivity on existing land plots rather than um, um, ex expansion into the, into the forest frontier, across the forest frontier, I might say. Um, the second um, point there is working with um, um, financial institutions that provide input finance um, for farmers. They typically borrow and to purchase their inputs, their seed and fertilizer and everything else. Um, and so to work with them to understand what the, um, you know, the risks are 
also in terms of payback horizons and so on and so forth to ensure that they also similarly look at more preferential deal, um, deals. And, and that does require working with cooperatives and, 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 look, and, and often in place um, medium-sized and small producers working together. So these are the sorts of things which, which are happening on the ground in the field. And, and, they, and they come from an understanding, if you like, of the risk calculus that producers face. Um, turning to consumption, Narco, I don't know about you, but when I go shopping, I mean, you, you have this, and, I, and I consider myself to be well informed, it's really difficult, nonetheless, to distinguish between the footprint of various products that you purchase. And I think we at, we at WWF have been thinking about this, and I don't know, I'm looking at my colleagues to say whether I should mention it, but we're talking, saying that we really need, like we have calorie counters on our food, some kind of earth calorie system, so we're able to understand better the footprint of our, of our food and consumption choices. And that's something we do, do not currently have, and you can understand it is a little overwhelming for all of us. Um, as we try to do the right thing, but sort of confronted with this fast choice. Um, turning to um, the, the oceans and fisheries, um, the big challenge, of course, here is that um, some 70% plus of fisheries globally are either fully exploited or, or, or overexploited, and the trend is getting worse. And, um, and similarly, aquaculture is no solution because it's led to huge, huge transformation of mangroves and other coastal ecosystems around the planet. So the big question is, what do we do to transform this sector? So critical in terms of protein, um, 2.4 billion people around the planet depend on fish as one of their primary sources of protein. And um, that there are good examples and some simple things. <laughs> they don't sound simple, but marine protected areas. We've been working with CARE in Mozambique and some great successes um, you know, from marine protected area establishment. It sounds counterintuitive, um, being setting aside areas um, for, um, and or temporarily setting them aside, so not permanently setting them aside, um, reduce spawning biomass and, and big impact in terms of recruitment to fisheries. And in Mozambique, 70% of the local fishers um, report um, a higher catch relative to the baseline, and there's been a big increase in biodiversity. This is not going to be the magic bullet um, solution for the planet. We're going to need to look at offshore mariculture. We're going to need to work out how we address the environmental externalities of that, and much, much more. So technology will play a key part um, in, 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 in our future. And, and I think, you know, as we look to feed ourselves and from the oceans, um, all of these um, solutions need to be brought to bear. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go a few minutes over time, but I think hearing Bob's thoughts is worth it. Bob, go ahead. Yeah. First, I'd like to agree with what Nick just said about fisheries. The only thing I would add to that uh, is indeed to de we need to decapitalize the fishing fleet. It's grossly overcapitalized. We need less uh, large fishing fleets. We need quotas with good management to make sure the quota systems work. The protected marine protected areas can help to build uh, new stocks. So uh, the fisheries answer I liked very much. With respect to small-scale farmers, especially in developing countries, many are still only getting one tonne per hectare, two tonnes per hectare, when they should be able to get three, four, five tonnes per hectare. Why aren't they? It's rural development. They're not technologically limited, or it's not a technology-limited issue. They need better seeds. They need appropriate, um, appropriate amounts of agrochemicals. They need knowledge. They need 
extension services that recognise many farmers are women and yet they're male-dominated extension services. Uh, they need affordable finance and while well, they've got uh, loan sharks in many of these villages, uh, they need infrastructure, roads and storage facilities. So it's basically a rural development challenge. It's not a technology challenge for today. But as climate changes, we will need to have biotechnology which should not be equated just to GMOs because it's far broader. So understanding the genetic makeup of our plants will help even classical plant breeding. And that's very, very important not to mix up GMOs and biotechnology as synonymous with each other. And clearly as climate changes, we need breeds that will be either more flood resistant, temperature resistant, uh, even salinity resistant. So there is a role for technology, but today it's not a technology issue. It's a rural development issue. It's distorted trade systems all around the world, basically. And the last comment I just make is, how do you change individuals? I think this actually goes back to education. I think we need schools that do have education talking about these environmental issues. It worked really well with school children and recycling. They learnt about why we should recycle. They came home and told mummy and daddy not to throw the tin can away or not to throw the plastic bottle away. If we can educate the children, they can help to educate the parents, basically. And so it is hard to get behaviour change, but I think it is quite plausible and it really should start at the school children level. It's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those that are here in person, what a great audience and great questions. And thank you for those watching online. Please give a round of applause for our speakers.